All right. Okay, man. Man, this is throwing me off my game, but we got this, y'all. Uh, but here's the deal, right? If you, if you know pastors, here's what's true. You go to a lunch where a bunch of pastors are hanging out, it's inherently weird. I'm going to tell you why. You wouldn't think that, but I'm going to tell you why. Here's the deal. You show up, and there's a couple different things, right? There's this desire to love, to host, to share, to serve in the same way. But then what you tend to get is you, you likely get a group of people who are more natural leaders, so they don't really have a problem over-talking. That can be one tendency, right? Or the second thing, you guys know the moment when you're out at dinner with a bunch of Christians, and they come to bring the meal, and you try to figure out who has to pray? Dude, it's like a whole nother level with pastors. Because they like sit around, and everyone's like, I love talking to God. I would love to pray. Mixed with, I want to be humble in heart, so no, you guys, please, you go ahead, right? Here's the reason I, I, I share that. I was hanging out with this guy, and he'd reached out to ask me a question. He was asking about a ministry we're doing here on Monday night. It's a discipleship ministry called Regeneration. But before I talk about that, he goes to set up, because I'm just getting to know him, and he starts sharing a little bit about the church body he's a part of. He's planting a church here in town, and he goes to describe his version of goals. And this may not happen to you, but when I go meet with pastors, there's something that I keep seeing this theme of. Whenever they come to describe, hey, here's the heart Here's the reason I felt called by God to come be a part of a, a plant or an established church or a continuation, whatever it might be. They go to describe, which is good. They give vision to what they think the church should be. But I'm sitting at this lunch, and this guy, he does what a lot of folks have done. He says, we've come to plant a church. And when I say a church, what I mean is, Gospel-driven, missionally-minded, spiritually healing, disciple-making church. He may have given a few other descriptors in there, right? But he came and he essentially did something. He said, I want to use the word church. But because there can be so much confusion, difference in view about what that word really means, he clarified it with multiple different descriptors. And as he's sitting there and he's telling me that, because you, you gotta remember, imagine you're me. We're sitting at Wesatch right here. I got the pork sandwich. It was delicious, right? I'm sitting there and he's sharing this with me. And I totally understand why he's doing that. And I love gospel-driven, missionally-minded. I wanna do all that too. Right, but I started to think, when did we have to, have to start describing what the church should be. Like, when, when was the moment, when, especially, think even American Christianity, where we came in and just description of, I want to be a New Testament church. We all of a sudden had to shift and begin to clarify, and what I mean by that is this, and this, and this, and this, and I shared that with him. And I shared, man, I love that, and what I love about that is I hope as you continue to do that in the future, you never again have to describe, people just know that's a church. What is a church? A church is, of course, missionally-minded, gospel-driven, biblically-based, disciple-making. And he looked at me in a great way. He looked at me and he said, well, hey, yeah, a lot of churches, because I specifically asked him about disciple-making. He said, a lot of churches, though, when you go and you ask them about discipleship, he said, hey, you just get blank stares from leadership, which is a tragedy. 
Right? And he goes on to say, hey, what a lot of churches, when they mean by discipleship, and I'm sitting there at Wiesach, and he says all this. It was amazing. What they mean by discipleship is, hey, come Sunday, great, great worship. Hopefully there's enough of a decent communicator to where you stay engaged for 40 minutes, but you start looking at your watch as soon as it turns to 42 because you're like, you're taking away from brunch. Right? And then beyond that, discipleship and cool. Hey, I got to make sure I get my kid in the youth group. But beyond that, it falls short in terms of empowering people to be all that Christ would have them be. I'm sitting there with a pastor who's having to clarify the church should be passionate about making disciples. I don't know when that happened in history to where we had to start clarifying that. Because as you read this, as you, as you read scripture, as you examine the New Testament, here's what I'm telling you. Disciple-making after disciple-making after disciple-making after disciple-making after disciple-making. And when I say that, does God want me as a positional authority, as a, as a pastor of the springs, to make disciples? Absolutely. You know who else he wants to make disciples? Y'all. Where so many times, churches, what they've done is they've come and they've offloaded the role of discipleship to someone like me. When a church, we were all meant to be the disciple makers. So here's my prayer for today. We are going to talk about how do we as a church body so that we don't have to clarify disciple making. How do we so love discipleship? How do we so love ministry that people just know it? And when I say discipleship, here's all I'm talking about. Helping others, and through that yourself, helping others grow to be more like Jesus. Could there be a more technical definition? Sure. Do I like mine? You bet. Here's, here's all that is. This can be to a non-believer and to a believer introducing faith to them till they hopefully come to know, or it can be to a Christian. How do I help you, and by doing so, help me go from one degree of glory to another. The reason we start here is the text we're going to look at. We're going to check out three verses. We're really the heart behind it. It's the heart of a pastor. It's the heart of someone who's come and on behalf of a group of people says, I refuse to waste my life. Why? Because they matter so much. And he gives everything to helping make Disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. Here's why I think that this is essential, church. Here's why. And I, hey, I get this, and I don't mean to knock this overtly. I think it's essential because one of the last things Jesus says to believers, right? We, we talk about this a ton. If you don't know this, it's Matthew 28. It's verses 19 and 20. We're not, we're not going to put it up here. I bet many of you are familiar with it. If not, he says, go make disciples Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. It's his divine promise. Here's what I'm commanding. It's a commission you to do, and I'll help you. You don't have to ask the question, do I have a calling to make disciples, church? You've already been commissioned to make disciples. So for us, the question then is not, do I or do I not? The question then becomes, 
Will I enjoy doing it? How effective will I be at it? So here's what I hope you take away from this. I think you can love helping other people look more like Jesus Christ. And I think God has made you and gifted you in a way to where you can do it with people I can't get to. And you can do it in ways that I'm not gifted at doing. And discipleship does not only mean coming, opening up a Bible, and publicly teaching. I'd argue that's the minority of discipleship. So church, we got to do this. And if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, here's what I think today. At the end of it, I almost tripped, I'm sorry. At the end of it, you should just applaud. A lot of times, non-believers, what they reject is not what we would describe as a biblical Jesus. They often reject, which I have been, a mean, judgmental, hypocritical version that seems to represent Christ as a Christian. So what that means is non-believers, what we have a responsibility to do is to get out of the way and say, no, no, don't look at me alone as a representation of God. But here, let me come and describe to you him. Because that's a Jesus where, man, people, they disagreed with him in the Bible. Yes, they put him to death, people in positions. But you know what a lot of folks love to do? They loved to be around him. Why? Church, non-believers, believers, those working through it, they want to be around us when we become more and more like Jesus. There is nothing, and if you're single, hear this. There is nothing more attractive in a person than a sincere love of Christ that changes. And if you don't think that's true, just keep hanging out with Christians and begin to see if it's true. That's where if you're here and you're working through faith, the reason you love this is because discipleship, it helps Christians look more like Jesus. Because, man, we are imperfect. I get it wrong frequently. But people like you, Holy Spirit in me, helps me look more like him. And that, it's attractive. The place we're going to be, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're just looking at three verses today. So it's short. I pray it's sweet. We're going verses 704. Oh, Sorry, I can't do math. 17 through 20. That's where we'll be. We're going to break it down into three ideas where we talk about, hey, how do we grow in a love for ministry? How do we grow in a passion for discipleship? And Paul lists three of the reasons here. Right? The way he describes it is, one, love your people. Love your people. Two, know your enemy. And three, and this one's going to make people nervous, so lean in. Consider your glory. We're going to learn hey, what's on the line is not only glorifying God in heaven, but part of your heavenly glory he wants to give you. It's so exciting. Right, to set this up, here's where we are. The Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to a church in Thessalonica. He's encouraging them. He just wrote the entire section in chapter 2 where he's saying, hey, this was my heart and why I came to you. And right here, this is really three verses where he's transitioning. Right? But in his transition, he's answering this question. He's answering, hey, Paul, I know you were with us the timeline would have been about a year ago. Why have you not come back? 
Why did you not return? Why did you not come visit? And Paul, he's going to answer that by describing his love for them, his heart for discipleship. So read with me. We're going to read verses 17 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 2. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, that's that approximate year, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. The first idea out of this, they're asking Paul, hey, where were you? Why didn't you come? And the first thing Paul doubles down on is his love for them. Why did Paul so deeply care about the ministry in Thessalonica? He honestly loved them. So the first thing for you and for me is we think through, how do you grow in a heart for discipleship, helping people look more like Jesus? You gotta come to love them. So the first idea is love your people. I'm going to explain from the text what I mean by that, but really there's a gal in our body. Her name's Linda Smith. She does this so well. I just want to give an example for why am I saying love your people? Linda, if you don't know her, she's very theatrical, charismatic, gifted, this great like woo personality. She does a ton of local theater. That's her thing. And you know who she can get to? A bunch of local theater people that won't come here. And she describes it as, John, those are my people. Those are the ones that I go to. They're the ones I love. Why? Because there's an overlap of passion, desire, just honest reality. If that's what she likes to do, meets, there's a spiritual need. Who, who are your people? Are they the moms that go to the same school as you that you huddle up with after? Are they the people that in your football fantasy league you spend a lot of time talking to throughout the week? Are they the people in your office building that when you intentionally engage, you go to see them at lunch? Is that them? Right? Or is it the, there's a sweet gal on my block that's doing this. Y'all know Tuesday is National Night Out or something like that? Yeah, a couple of y'all are nodding. If not, a bunch of your neighbors are going to gather Tuesday. I have this neighbor across the street catty corner named Dottie. She's a follower of Jesus Christ. She loves Jesus. And she's hosting National Night Out, where you basically just go and you meet your neighbors. Now, I've never asked Dottie specifically, but I bet if I could sit down and I were to ask her, hey, who do you view as your people? She'd say, my neighbors, man. Why do you do this? So I can talk to my neighbors. That's what I mean by your people. Here's how they become Paul's people. I'm just going to show you guys some of the language here. Verse 17, but we were torn away from you. You guys may remember the Apostle Paul. He had to flee at night for fear of safety. Torn away, this is language used of when a, a child lost their parents. And all of a sudden, the child became orphaned. Or parents lost their child. It's literally the tearing of family. Paul's using family language. He goes on, and then he calls them brothers. When was the last time outside of immediate family? Church, we honestly had people where we so came to love that it was like, no, man, that's family love. It's different with them. I'll expand my relational scope. That's what Paul was doing. He even keeps going on. 
He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire. He's redundant there. More eagerly, great desire. Here's what he's talking about. It would be like me coming to hang out with my wife and looking at my wife and saying, I love you. I truly, sincerely, deeply, wholeheartedly love you. Those are four words saying the same thing, but why did I say it? To stress. It's serious. It's intense. It's energetic to it. So Paul, he's answering, why has he not come? The first thing he's saying is, I loved you guys. I was there for you. He goes on, and then he starts talking about things like uh, see you face to face. It's just deep, intimate friendship. You know why the church oftentimes, you know what? You know why I oftentimes do not make disciples, help people grow to either be introduced or fall in love with Jesus Christ? I don't have time to make friends. I don't have time to get to know people, to love them. To where discipleship is hindered. Why? Because relationship is shallow. And man, Bahi's saying, you want to love ministry. You got to love people. What, what makes discipleship uh, sticky? You guys ever heard of it? Sticky is like a new term for a lot of things. You can make an idea sticky, church is sticky, volunteer sticky. A lot of things can be sticky, right? What makes discipleship sticky? Relationships. People you come to sincerely love. You see this at folks where you go. And the people who are diehard and they give their, their life to the volunteer uh, food bank, Right? Do you think they do that because they so desperately believe in the cause of food? I bet that's part of it. But I think it's mostly they've come to know the people in the kitchen. They've come to meet the people they deliver the food to. They've gotten to know the people who are in charge of it, pleading on behalf of God, can we destroy food poverty in Comal County? It's just through relationship. Relationships make life sticky. My wife, when she was... Uh, just graduating college, she went to um, a Christian conference. And at this conference, and rightly so, right, they made a huge, um, they raised the value of how do we as this generation combat the sex trade to where by the time we die, it's eliminated throughout the world. So she goes, is that a cause to her that she'd had an interest in? I'm sure. But she hears this, she learns of it, she doesn't know much about it, and she goes and she has a conversation with a gal who's actively doing it. One conversation. That gal introduces her to a four-month internship where she can go to India and engage with women in the sex trade, loving them, serving them, helping them find jobs to transition out, restoring dignity to them through Jesus Christ. So she has a desire, but she doesn't really know, but what does she do? She goes to India. Here's the thing that happened in India. If she went because, for eight, if she went because she so wanted to dismantle sex trafficking, her heart for it changed because she so fell in love with the women she met. To where she then called them, man, they're like my Indian family. To where when she came back, she came back to Dallas, what motivated her to come and find a way to serve? It wasn't simply a desire to combat sex trafficking. It was because she'd fallen in love with women who'd been impacted by it. There was 
honest and true relationship. Here's what I just want to ask you. Who do you so love that you love enough to make an impact? Who knows you deeply enough to where even even if it's not immediate family, and do I think you should do this with family? Absolutely. But who in my life do I so deeply care about? Towards no, I'm going all in on discipleship because Jesus Christ went all in on me. What's the way we grow in a love for this? What's the way we, we as a church do it with sincerity? Love our people. Let's read verse 18. This one's short and sweet. Verse 18, back in the text. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. The second idea is one of the things we have to understand if we are growing a commitment, if we're going to grow in a love for caring for others, it's we must know our enemy. Know your enemy. So, so biblically here, because whenever we talk about Satan, folks, they get nervous, and I, and I understand it, right? Because what, what I'm not talking about here is like the next Exorcist movie that's coming out. Right? But what I am talking about here is biblically, there's a divine angel, and that angel is evil. He goes by the name Satan, deceiver, father of lies. He's got a lot of different names. He is never as powerful as God. He's never as powerful as Jesus Christ. He works in submission to the Father. But he is real. He does have a purpose. Turn with me. Well, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to go to 1 Peter 5. This is one of the verses that helps me. Verses 8 and 9. It'll be up on the, up on the screen. This is talking to a church just after the context here of supporting and helping them grow. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil... You have an enemy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here's what we have to know. As we go on the offense, as we go for absolute pursuit of discipleship, is you've got to know there's an honest enemy to it. There's an honest enemy. The word here that it uses to describe is hinder. I didn't know this till studying it this week. Hinder, it's actually a military term. It was used by armies where what they do is it just means to put up obstacles or break up roads. They'd go and they would know a troop route was going to advance a kingdom this direction. And they would destroy the road. Why? So the troops couldn't cross it. They would go and they would cut off supply lines. Hinder. There is an enemy that is seeking to pull back the advancement of God. And one of the greatest ways, personally, so this isn't what this text says here, but I'm giving you my opinion. I think one of the greatest ways he does that in my life, and perhaps in yours, I don't think it's through pain. I don't think it comes in something uh, like possession where he takes over somebody and all of a sudden it gets really crazy like we're watching a movie. Am I saying he can't do that? No. But what am I saying? What's the major way he does that? I think right now is, man, he just makes sure that we are so distracted from things that actually matter that there's no real impact. 
There's a phrase you may have heard. We're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. Here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of times in my life, what can happen is there is an enemy. He doesn't come to me and can he and bring pain? Yes, he can do all that. But I think he knows more and more. If I get John to watch 14 hours of Netflix this week, that's 14 hours of opportunity to connect with his wife, to share with a friend, to read a book, to grow in an area, to open God's word and understand. If I can get John to when the weekend comes, view it as, okay, finally, my time. I get to relax. I get to take back. If I can get John to so view his money as it's his, his time as it's his, if I can distract him with that, then really, John has become so earthly-minded. He's nowhere near as heavenly good. Church, I really think one of the main things where we come to this is you really do have an enemy who wants to slow you down in terms of discipleship and care. I can remember coming back from international uh, discipleship trips, man, where the last thing they do is they say, hey, you've done this great work. As you come back, I would expect an emotional jarring. Why? Because why take the same missional mindset you had here and bring it back there? Satan knows if he can somehow start attacking you in the airport, then the week to follow may be different. Here's what I'm telling you. I don't, I don't think a demon hides under every rock. I think far too often, Christians, we can overdo this, but at the same time, we can underdo this. But what this text is teaching is there really is an enemy that wants to keep you and keep me from being effective. Anybody here see the movie uh, American Sniper? It's rated R, so I did not. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I'm off it. <laughs> but no. So this movie, if you haven't seen it, man, it's, it's about a, a guy, Navy SEAL, his name's Chris Kyle, most decorated American sniper, right, to have lived. He's no longer alive today. But they make this movie chronicling his life. It came out through a book. Now, Chris Kyle, he's a polarizing individual. So that, don't, if, that, if his personality polarizes you, just stay with me for this, because there was a part of the movie that I never forgot. And I think it absolutely pertains to this. At the start of the movie, there's this moment where it's doing this background on Chris. And in that, there's this time where Chris is sitting at this dinner table, where he's sitting at the dinner table with his dad and his mom. And his dad goes to describe personalities. Now, his dad does it in a way that's almost this uh, machismo, like, faux masculinity way of just overtly aggression, like, puff up your chest. But what he says, I think there's a lot of truth for us. Here's some of the transcript. Here's some of the script that they were saying. This is dad talking to Chris. There are three types of people in this world. Sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. Some people prefer to believe evil doesn't exist in the world. Those are the sheep. Then you go to the predators. They use violence to prey on the weak. Those are the wolves. Then there are those who have been blessed with the gift of aggression and an overpowering need to protect the flock. These men and women are a rare breed who live to confront the wolf. They are the sheepdog. Here's, here's the reason I share that with you. There's a true reality 
of there are wolves. There are people who actively oppose the things of God, both literally as well as supernaturally. And God has told you this. He is the good shepherd. Christ Almighty protects his sheep. He is the ultimate one to come and hold the wolves at bay. Satan himself bows at Christ. What we have to also remember, though, is God also uses Christians as sheepdogs. He uses us who go out in the world, salt and light, to confront the kingdom of darkness and bring light to it. But one of the greatest things that's happened, though, is as we go to talk about this, we think, okay, you got it, Satan. It's getting kind of weird. Because of Hollywood mysticism, don't, list, don't miss biblical truth. You and I, we have an enemy. Why does that matter? Because what does a sheepdog have? They have a desire to protect. Church, your love and your heart for discipleship not only helps protect others, protect your family, protect this body, protect me, but man, we are meant to keep the wolves at bay. God is the ultimate protector, but man, he wants to use us too. Let's keep going. Let's look now, verse 19 to 20, 19 through 20. This part's so exciting. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Third thing that motivates us, the third thing that helps build a passion in me for discipleship, and I pray a passion for you in discipleship is consider your glory. Consider your glory. Here's what's amazing about this is Paul, what he's describing is something every follower of Christ will face one day, right? He's describing this moment of honest where we will come and we will stand before God. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about it. We don't have time to teach it today. We will come and we'll stand before, our, before God and our life will be sifted through fire. Now here's what a Christian never has to worry about. Does it require anything from us to even get to heaven to have the moment where God examines the life? No. For the longest time, I thought the way I had a relationship with God was I had to be better, that there was this better version of me that if I could just get to, God would finally like me more. If I could stop looking at porn, if I could stop fooling around, if I could just slow down how much I was drinking, if I could just actually be a man of integrity rather than this facade of Southern kindness. I thought if I could do that, then I would get there. All of that is a work. All of that, it's taking the relationship of God to son, and instead of making him a son, making him a slave. None of that gives you unity with God. None of that reconciles you to the Father. The only thing that brings you into eternity is faith. Do you believe that God so loved you that Jesus Christ died on your behalf, and he rose from the grave to prove this is true. 
That, that's the changing moment. But then, Christian, once you have that belief, we've said many times, what does belief do? Belief changes behavior. Imperfectly. We don't always have it together. We oftentimes don't. But man, do we, by the grace of God, grow? Yes, we do. We do. And in that, that's where Paul, he's imagining in this moment, he's come before Christ. He's believed. That's given him entrance into heaven. But in heaven, what God then does, he says, okay, I gave you the greatest gift in the world. How did you steward it? How did you steward it? And one of the motives that Paul has is he imagines that moment. Not out of fear, though. Here's the amazing thing. He's talking out of joy. Right? Here's the, here's the shocking part. Is he comes and he says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? He asked this rhetorical question. Why am I so excited for one day going before God? And you think the answer would be, because Jesus. Like when in doubt, whenever people ask you questions about the church, you can default to Jesus. And probably 85% of the time, you're probably just going to be right, right? So you would think as Paul asked this, what's going to be my hope, my joy, my crown? He would lead with Jesus. Now hear me say, Paul absolutely believes that about Jesus Christ. There's no way without Jesus Christ, Paul even has entrance. Everything in heaven is for the glory of God. It will be the greatest thing that's ever happened to Paul, and all goodness in him comes from God. But how's Paul answer? He says, my joy, what will it be? It'll be from you guys. It'll be from the Thessalonians. Where in that moment, Paul, he imagines standing before God, where his life, it's sifted through fire in a moment of reward or opportunity cost and regret. And in that, there's almost this visual where he's standing there, and in that, he imagines the church of Thessalonica there. And in that, the faithfulness that God gave to Paul through them, he says, they will be for my joy and for my glory. Church, there's a way that God wants you to receive glory I know that makes Christians really nervous, so I'm doubling down on something again. Everything we do is for the glory of God, but part of the way that a good father glorifies himself is in giving particular areas of that attribute to his kids. And so for you, one of the things as you consider, as you think through a heart of discipleship, is you think through, should I really engage with my community group? Not just keep going, but honestly give it my best. One of the things that's a divine motive is the reality of God wants you to so picture your community group standing there. And in that moment to know imperfectly, you didn't have it all together. You didn't always know where to go. Yes, you probably could have been more committed at times, all that stuff. But God to say, you loved them. You served them. You sought to honor them and develop them. Well done. It is to your glory as your glory is to my glory. I can remember growing up, I had a couple different chores that I had to do around the house, right? Uh, 
I can remember uh, the one I always I hated doing, taking out the trash. It was like three layers, all these people. There were trash cans everywhere. I know that sounds so ridiculous, but trash, I hated doing trash. I had to do that every week. The other one is sometimes, and I didn't have to do it every day or anything like that. My parents were a little laid back, and I appreciate that. Right, was cleaning my room, but especially there are a couple seasons of life where we had a maid that would come weekly or every two weeks, and for some reason I always had to clean it, even though we were paying someone to clean it, but I always had to clean then, right? And then there was whenever we cooked at home, my job was one, set out the dinner table, uh, silverware, all that kind of stuff, and two, do the dishes with my dad after. But there was another one, it was mowing the lawn, right? Mowing the lawn at my house, it was one of those where I was expected to do it, I was asked to do it. You know what my parents gave me when I did it? 20 bucks. I got 20 bucks. What what would have happened if I just said, no, I won't do it. I won't go mow. I won't do it. My dad would have gone and mowed. Why? Because he liked a nice cut lawn, honestly. But two, he'd say, okay, fine, then you don't get that reward. I had a ton of friends who they had to do more chores than me and some of them less, who had to mow the lawn and not get paid, and some had to mow the lawn and they got paid a whole lot more. But here's the thing I always remembered. I always appreciated how my dad, and even though he had given me the task, he'd still set a reward for it. He still set something to where at the end of it, there was $20 involved. It's the same mindset that we have today oftentimes towards retirement. Like for those of you, and if you've done Dave Ramsey, you know this too, right? There's, okay, I got a pay down debt, I got an emergency fund, I got to clear up my budget, and then I got to shift where I get to start thinking about wealth building. Never gotten there, but I'm excited maybe one day, right? (laughs) Wealth building. Well, here's what it's talking about. He's talking about everything from retirement to even beyond that. How do I take from me today? How do I lay this down, whether that be 5%, 10%, whatever you want to do with your income if you have that privilege? Why? So the future one of me, the future version, has that reward set aside. So we live today in light of hopeful reward tomorrow. There's a divine blessing that is right and good and true, and it's far more important than money and finances But it's the reality of, hey, when it comes to the caring of people in your life, live today with the mindset of reward tomorrow. And the amazing thing is the Bible even talks about what do we do with some of these rewards? Man, we'll take most of them. We'll just throw them at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he's king of kings. He's the only one worth rewarding. He's the only one really worth getting after in that. But what does he want for you? And what does he want from me? Glory. How? By the way, we love and serve others. So church, as we think through, how do we grow a heart for discipleship? How do we be a church where we don't have to clarify by the grace of God? It's a disciple-making church, but people just so see it. What are three motives for growing that in my life and in yours? The first one, love your people. Who are your people? They're different than mine. Who are those folks? Who can you get to that we can't? Love your people too. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. Know that there is one who seeks to halt, withdraw, slow down, hinder progress. 
And if he can't do it here, he'll do it in individuals. And he does want to do it. And then three, consider glory. Consider the moment when not for fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. The moment you stand before God, you don't have to fear God. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for you. But to avoid a sense of loss, not an eternal sense of, man, I was a letdown to God. That won't happen. You can't have that feeling in heaven. You will never look in heaven and look around at other people and say, man, he really must have gotten after it. His mansion's bigger than mine. I'm jealous. That's not going to happen there. That heart will be gone because it is rooted in sin. But consider your glory. The thing I want to ask you guys to do is you just think about this, is make it simple. For some of you, the place I want you to focus is your community group here. If you go to the Springs, I want to talk to you about your community group. Right? I just want to ask you, one, do you give your group your best? Just think about it. Do I give my group my best? And then two, what's one way I can help my group grow? And then in the next 30 days, go tell them that and then help. Do I give my group my best? And what is one way, not that I'm going to ask my leader to do it for me, but I, I will lead and I will do it in the next 30 days. If you're here and you're following Christ, but you're not in a community group or you're working through whether or not community should even be for you, then here's what I'd encourage you to do. Think through. What's something you already get to do? Man, if some of you say you love golf, go play golf. Some of you love local theater, do local theater. You love going to New Braunfels football games on Friday night, go. But the second thing is, how could you use that time intentionally for Jesus Christ? What is one way you could redeem what you love. And then after that, take the next 30 days and go do that. If you guys remember at the beginning of this, I talked about what Paul's really showing this transition here is he's showing the heart of a pastor. As you guys come, there's a huge text that a lot of times, if you were to go to like a, a pastor's conference, they teach 1 Thessalonians 2, and rightly so. Why? This must be my heart more and more and more for the springs. To grow in a sincere love to where I absolutely, every ounce that I have, give my heart to it. The people, this community, to my neighbors, the folks I can engage with, to the friends here, to the community groups. But here's the part that I think we miss. People think, well, that's for the pastor. When in reality, church, you are a pastor. You have the privilege and the opportunity to go and make disciples. God doesn't just want me to have some mystical version of a word calling that we use to ascribe someone coming to this office. He wants you to have a place where you so love getting after it and you so help people grow in faith that it's worth it. Does that mean every day is going to be good? No. But man... He so called you to that. If you remember at the beginning, I went and I had lunch with that pastor and we were talking about region. And he asked me, hey man, I'd love to come and talk with you about this discipleship ministry. You guys are doing, learn a little bit more about it. 
And I said, hey, I'd love to come, but honestly, i got to bring a leader. I'm not the guy leading it. Can I bring the guy who's leading it? And I can remember at first through the email, he was trying to kick, no, hey, man, I'm just trying to talk to pastor. Right? And say, well, hey, no, you really need to talk to this guy because he's the guy leading it. And we come to lunch, and we're sitting there, and it's me. And the guy leading his name's Dan. And we're sitting there at lunch, and the guy's turning to me, and he's looking. And he's kind of sharing his heart of the church, and he's starting to ask me, what was my job at the lunch table? To, to field the question from him and then turn and say, Dan, what do you think? Let's ask the pastor. So many times people think that I alone am the pastor. How amazing would it be? And I, and I know we can't take it too far when people say, who pastors the Springs? I think it's absolutely fine to say John Alquist. But how amazing would it be if when we gathered so out of a love for Jesus Christ when people said, who pastors? Can I speak to a pastor? We church, especially members, turned and we said, which one? Who do you want to talk to? I help oversee this group. I help serve with this women's ministry. Hey, I come and I sacrifice time every Sunday as a pastor to set up and tear down. Why? Because I model for the church how when you do something to the glory of God, even when no one gives you thanks for it, it's worth it. How about you come and you sacrifice on Monday night like I saw a family do this past week to come and care for 30 kids and it's madness and they're only doing it because they love Jesus Christ and they want to disciple little ones. What if when we go to these meetings, what if when I go meet with other pastors with sincerity, we don't have to say we're a disciple-making church because I can turn and say, which pastor do you want to meet? And none of them are getting paid. That's a goal. That's the heart Paul had for Thessalonica. That's the heart I have and I pray I have more and more for the springs. That is the heart God wants you to have for your people in your way. Let me pray that we would love the privilege of that. Father, man, I thank you. I thank you for the reminder of this and for the joy of just getting to come and talk about it. God, I'm asking you to grow my heart to love you and out of a love for you to care more and more and more. To love people, to know I have an enemy, to consider glory and work through the reality of one day I'll stand before you and part of this life, it will be there as a reward for me and everything will still be for you. I thank you for the truth of that. I pray you'd move in the hearts of people. May the springs be a New Testament church. May we be a disciple making church. I need your help to do that. We need your help to do that. It's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, you guys, thank you for coming. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next Sunday.